Chapter 3 Modern Liahonas, Scripture, Revelation, and Disciples of the Second Sort Two sources of truth that are available to us are Revelation, prophetic and personal, and Scripture, traditional Christian and Restoration. In the latter source in particular, we find an immediate complication, the same complication Joseph Smith discovered in his original quest for enlightenment. Protestants base their claim to truth and authority on one source, the Bible alone, sola scriptura. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by contrast, could be said to have begun with a pointed and emphatic rejection of sola scriptura. The entire possibility of a biblically-based Christianity is rendered incoherent in Joseph Smith's personal experience, which was his and his movement's entire rationale for a newly revealed religion. As Joseph said of his personal quest, teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passage of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question of religious truth by an appeal to the Bible. A historian of the Reformation found himself in agreement. Ideas mattered profoundly. They had an independent power of their own, and they could be corrosive and destructive. The most corrosive ideas of all were to be found in the Bible, an explosive, unpredictable force in every age. How then do we find our way to clarity when Latter-day Saint canonical works can provide similar bases for disputation and disagreement? We can begin by recognizing that the tender in heart have long had difficulty in passing the scriptures to find a true portrait of God. One early Christian so despaired of reconciling the gentle Christ of the New Testament with the vengeful figure of the Old Testament that he advocated abandoning the Jewish scriptures altogether. Marcion and many other Christians found it impossible to reconcile what they saw as two versions of God and proposed eliminating the Old Testament from the Christian canon. The great 20th century scholar and theologian, Adolf von Harnack, actually suggested that we might follow Marcion's proposal to make Christianity more self-consistent. A few centuries after Marcion, the inspired ascetic Isaac the Syrian was wrestling with the same problem. He did not reject the Old Testament, but questioned its inerrancy. To suppose that retribution for evil acts is to be found in God is abominable. Readers who aspire to find perfect consistency across the standard works will find that they are on a fool's errand. For example, Francine Benyon has pointed out that one can read the story of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter for victory in war, a version of God who can and must be bargained with a God who considers unquestioned obedience to be the highest good, not just the means to goodness, but goodness itself, a God who causes suffering in the innocent and also authorizes theology that fosters it. However, she notes, such a reading is in direct tension with other scriptures that seem to speak of God's valuing agency above obedience, love above tradition, and the human heart above ritual sacrifice. One cannot even read the opening passages 
of Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 without encountering contradictory genealogies for Jesus. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus proclaims that neutrality to him is opposition. He who is not with me is against me. In Mark and elsewhere in Luke, he teaches the reverse, that neutrality is tacit support. Whoever is not against me is for me. In the book of Joshua, we read that in his conquest, Joshua left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed. In Judges, we read of the Israelites asking the Lord who should lead the attack against the very Canaanites Joshua had presumably entirely eradicated. All these and myriad other contradictions have their fierce apologists, finding creative ways of reconciling apparent disharmonies, even though some difficulties are frankly insurmountable. The author of the Gospel of John, for example, tells us quite clearly that the Last Supper occurs the day before Passover. The other three writers all state that it occurs on Passover. Nevertheless, the drive to find scriptural consistency is fiercely embedded in much of the Protestant tradition. Evangelicals who subscribe to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy believe that, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, in what it states about God's acts and creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God. Furthermore, the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. As for human and cultural influence on the way such revelation is received, the statement rejects those factors. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. If friends of other faiths were to attend a typical Latter-day Saint Sunday School class, they would be excused for thinking that the saints also subscribe to the claims made in the Chicago Statement. The prevailing assumption with Latter-day Saint culture, apparent in virtually all scriptural exegesis, is that we can make all the scriptures harmonize. Everything therein is a true and accurate account of God's nature and dealings, including God's murder of the lads who mocked Elisha, God's massacre of Egyptian children, and his explicit directive to stone to death the Sabbath stick-gatherer. Can we actually reconcile Jehovah's genocide of the Canaanites and his smiting of thousands because David took a census with that same Jehovah's compassion for the sparrow? Are we also content to accept God's killing of Uzzah, who tried to protect the sacred ark from tumbling and was killed for his efforts? It is an observable fact that we are not, in general, approaching scriptural reading in the light of core restoration teachings that advise us to be cautious in our assumptions about scriptural inerrancy. 
the entire restoration was a project intended to redress that state of awful woundedness that was explicitly attributed to scriptural corruption and the loss of the Bible's plain and precious things. No wonder, then, that the first prophet of the Restoration reported that there were many things in the Bible which do not accord with the revelation of the Holy Ghost to me. As for the role of our simple humanity and cultural conditioning in scriptural fallibility, George Q. Cannon took a position on divine revelation that is precisely opposite to the Chicago Statement. The revelation, he said, we may get, imperfect at times, because of our fallen condition and because of our failure to comprehend the nature of it, comes from God. Man is but the medium, but the instrument is the conduit through which it flows. This is the position occupied by the Latter-day Saints. We believe in revelation. It may come dim, it may come indistinct, it may come sometimes with a degree of vagueness which we do not like. Why? Because of our imperfection. Because we are not prepared to receive it as it comes in its purity, in its fullness from God. He is not to blame for this. What is true of revelation in general must be true of Scripture in particular, as Scripture is one form that revelation takes. Brigham Young's concerns mirrored those of Joseph Smith and George Cannon, except that Young went much further than most all of his peers and fellow Christians. He wrote, I have heard some make the broad assertion that every word within the lids of the Bible was the word of God. I have said to them, You have never read the Bible, have you? Oh, yes, and I believe every word in it is the word of God. Well, I believe that the Bible contains the word of God, and the words of good men, and the words of bad men, the words of good angels, and the words of bad angels, and words of the devil. Recognizing that the scriptures are fallible, and that superficial readings are harmful, gives us liberty to approach the scriptures with caution and with a more questing spirit. There is good reason behind the injunction to search the scriptures. Maturing into the recognition that scriptures, like prophets, are fallible, creates a dilemma many have felt when we leave such golden calves behind. What is the benefit, then, of putting our faith in an imperfect voice? Our canonical scriptures clearly bear the imprint of God's inspiration, and we should treat them with reverence even while recognizing that the Spirit is not the source of every word. We do have at least one revealed litmus test for truth. It comes from the greatest of Joseph Smith's revelations, Moses chapter 7. There we encounter the weeping God of Enoch, the man of holiness, and father of the Son of Man. This magnificent epiphany provides us a template that corrects the greatest evil in the history of Christian theology, the God, the Father, who is divested of emotion, passion, vulnerability, and capacity to weep real tears in shared suffering with his children. 
C.S. Lewis did not know this scripture, but he did infer the great truth it taught. Writing to a friend, he acknowledged the danger of assuming that our own moral sensibility is the appropriate standard for judging God's actions. We run the risk of presentism, personal subjectivity, and finite perspective when we dismiss out of hand biblical depictions we find uncomfortable. I see the grave danger we run by doing so, Lewis wrote, but the dangers of believing in a God whom we cannot but regard as evil, and then, in mere terrified flattery, calling him good and worshipping him, is still greater danger. The ultimate question is whether the doctrine of the goodness of God or that of the inerrancy of Scripture is to prevail when they conflict. We think the doctrine of the goodness of God is the more certain of the two. Lewis was but repeating a maxim of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, whom Brigham Young called as good a man who ever walked the earth. Wesley stated, But you say you will prove it by the scripture. Hold, what will you prove by scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that scripture proves, it can never prove this. Whatever its true meaning be, this cannot be its true meaning. This I know. Better it were to say it had no sense at all than to say it had such a sense as this. The best question we might ask ourselves is this. Does what I am reading expand my heart and mind, or does it harrow the mind and constrict the heart? Many early church fathers and mothers remain true and faithful to their understanding of the parental nature of God. Macrina, the sister and teacher of the church father Gregory of Nyssa, taught that the godlike qualities of the soul draw it to those same qualities in the divine by means of the movement and the activity of love. Later, the anchoress Julian of Norwich would declare that God is not capable of wrath because wrath and friendship be two contraries. What J. Reuben Clark said of spoken scripture must pertain equally well to that which is written. I have given some thought to this question, and the answer thereto, so far as I can determine, is we can tell when the speakers and writers are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, only when we ourselves are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. In a way, this completely shifts the responsibility from them to us to determine when they so speak. The call to discipleship is not for the faint of heart. The expanded West translation of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, reads as follows. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him forget self and lose sight of his own interests, and let him pick up his cross and carry it, and let him take the same road with me that I travel. While the road Jesus travelled led to our exaltation, the work of discipleship is costly, painful, and gruelling. 
Saints are good at service and at sacrifice. We live a high-demand faith, as sociologists recognize. We give up time and money and energy. However, we are not a people overly given to contemplation or to devotional prayer and pondering. In Oliver Cowdery's 1834 version of the Articles of Faith, he wrote that, We believe that God is the same in all ages, and that it requires the same holiness, purity, and religion to save a man now, as it did anciently. Unfortunately, that article was dropped from our canonized version. We saints have typically been as industrious as bees, as a beloved emblem suggests. As Wilford Woodruff once said with some impatience, strangers in the Christian world marvel at our emphasis on temporal work and responded that we can't build up Zion sitting on a hemlock slab, singing ourselves away to everlasting bliss. We have to cultivate the earth to take the rocks and elements out of the mountains and rear temples to the Most High God. Spencer W. Kimball's favourite motto, to which he so often reverted, was, Do it. As Terry Eagleton reminds us, the Gospel of Matthew teaches, Eternity lies not in a grain of sand, but in a glass of water. The cosmos revolves on comforting the sick. In this essential sphere of active, engaged, service-oriented discipleship, Latter-day Saints have excelled. We have not done as well in the meditative, contemplative half of discipleship. One reason may be our language of gospel fullness, which seduces us into a kind of complacency. We have modern prophets, we have additional scripture, we have a correlated curriculum, and we believe we have answers to all those questions that haunt human history. We claim to know where we come from, why we are here, and where we are going. All of this adds up to a picture of completion, wholeness, satiety. If we are not smug, we are satisfied. We read a scripture that mocks the world for their self-satisfaction. A Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. But do we liken that overconfident contentment to ourselves, as Nephi admonished? Bearing the cross of discipleship involves the strenuous effort of the mind, as well as that of the body and the heart. B. H. Roberts encouraged discipleship that is more intellectually effortful. He wrote, Mental laziness is the vice of men, especially with reference to divine things. Men seem to think that because inspiration and revelation are factors in connection with the things of God, therefore the pain and stress of mental effort are not required, that by some means these elements act somewhat as Elijah's ravens and feed us without effort on our part. Why then should man strive and trouble himself to understand? Much study is still a weariness of the flesh, so men reason. And just now it is much in fashion to lord the simple faith, which is content to believe without understanding, or even without much effort to understand. Joseph Smith reminded us 
that the things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Some of that stretching may require a more rigorous consideration of the language we employ to convey gospel understanding that is still unfolding as the restoration proceeds apace. And we recognise that as more Latter-day Saint women's voices are incorporated into our discourse, that understanding is enriched and broadened. Joseph also prophesied that it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language. That prophecy may be about something other than foreign tongues. The Lord said that the commandments were given to us in our weakness, after the manner of our language. In section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord made clear that scriptural language does not always mean what we think it means. Some wording is chosen deliberately that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men. Brigham Young emphasized that language effective in one generation is not in another. He wrote, When God speaks to the people, he does it in a manner to suit their circumstances and capacities. Should the Lord Almighty send an angel to rewrite the Bible, it would in many places be very different from what it is now. And I will even venture to say that if the Book of Mormon were now to be rewritten, in many instances it would materially differ from the present translation according as people are willing to receive the things of God, so the heavens send forth their blessings. The traditions of the fathers, embedded in an inherited religious language, continue to injure us. Language calculated to operate on 19th century minds and those of earlier epochs may not be the most efficacious for our moment in history. The work of restoration to be complete must include the casting off of those traditions, presuppositions, frameworks, paradigms, and vocabulary that still fill the garden of the gospel like tenacious weeds. The plain and precious things restored cannot attain their full splendor unless and until they are fully unencumbered by those traditions that still pervade our language and our conceptions alike. We need a new vocabulary, a new gospel grammar, freed from the corruptions of our Christian heritage. The visionary member of the Seventy, B.H. Roberts, foresaw this need and hoped for its fulfillment in our day. He found his inspiration in the writings of the eminent American philosopher, Josiah Royce, Disciples, Royce said, are of two sorts. There are first the disciples pure and simple. They expound and defend and ward off foes and live and die faithful to one formula. On the other hand, there are disciples of a second sort, 
the seed that the sower strews upon his fields springs up in his soil and bears fruit thirty, sixty, and hundredfold. Disciples of the second sort cooperate in the works of the Spirit and help lead to a truer expression. B. H. Roberts read these words and built them into a prophecy and a call to action. Mormonism, he said, calls for these disciples of the second sort, disciples who will not be content with merely repeating some of its truths, but will develop its truths and enlarge it by that development. The disciples of Mormonism, growing discontented with the necessarily primitive methods which have hitherto prevailed in sustaining the doctrine, will cast them in new formulas, cooperating in the works of the Spirit until they help to give to the truths received a more forceful expression.